Hey, good morning, everyone, and welcome to all of those that are worshiping at our online campus and our physical campuses, wherever you might be. And man, I just hope that you're not bringing any bad energy or vibes because of the Vikings yesterday. I don't have any margin for that disaster yesterday, okay? So you're with me to bring joy. I've got some good news to share with you that's far more important. I got a text last evening from one of our uh, staff leaders. Uh, we, last week when we were here in our worship services, we prayed that God would be with our students, middle school students and high school students, about a 250 students and staff who joined them um, up at camp this week, that God would meet them in a special way. And I'm so excited to tell you that dozens and dozens of kids put their faith in Jesus Christ for the first time and dozens and dozens of kids rededicated their life to Jesus Christ. Now that's joy and we want to bring that joy into our celebration and a new series because those students have a perspective of heaven that begins today that's different perhaps than what they knew before. And we're going to come alongside of them to that end, even in our whole church, as we begin this new series on heaven. And I think you know this to be true. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die to get there. <laughs> but we will die uh, unless Christ returns in advance. Heaven is one of those subjects that I get requested to teach on probably as much, if not more, than any other subject. And I've never done a series in 26 years at Westwood dedicated to heaven. So I put a little series together that addresses some of the most frequently asked questions. I put it up on the screen for you. Today we're going to talk about where is heaven. Let me just give you a warning. You're going to school today. It's complex. I want to make it accessible. So I brought a pen, a, scat, a sketch paper, and you're, you're going to learn. So I hope you had extra coffee. Did you? Will you be with me today? We need to learn and get a foundation, a frame of reference by which all the practical things you want to know about will flow, including why we set our minds on heaven, what will our relationships be like in heaven, what will you do in heaven, and can you know where you're going? Uh, can you know that you're going to heaven? Can you have that confidence? Such an important question for us. And I know there are hundreds of more questions you have, so let me recommend a resource to you. Um, please pick up and read Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. He's probably the most dedicated, researched thinker and writer on the subject of heaven that's on the planet Earth today. And you will be inspired, you'll be renewed as you step into that given place. I'm also gonna be referencing um, words from my theology prof, Wayne Grudem, N.T. Wright, but as well Dallas Willard, all who align with the same point of view concerning heaven. And my aim in this series is threefold, and I want to lay it out for you. In fact, I'm humbled by this. Heaven's on my mind, not just because I've spent two weeks deep diving here, um, the subject of heaven, but uh, Carrie and I lost a very dear friend on Thursday. Didn't see it coming, completely unexpected, younger than us, Westwood um, individual, and we're grieving the loss of this. So heaven is actively on my mind, thinking about our good friend. I have a threefold aim in this series. First of all, it's to engender a warm hope. That is to say, embracing the gospel should change our view of death. Hebrews reminds us of this in Hebrews chapter two. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who are, um, all live their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. So I want to be clear. We don't want to romanticize death. But we want to realize that death is the gateway to never-ending joy. 
It is not something that we ought fear as people have put faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, um, this series, my hope, will fire up your imagination <laughs> about heaven. I mean, we just look at it so casually. Did you catch that? I want to fire up your imagination about heaven <laughs> because I fear um, that it, it isn't fired up, that, that we need to bring clarity about heaven as it's revealed to us in God's word versus some of the teaching through church history that has confused us, demotivated us, created a picture of some kind of place where it's an endless hymn sing or so ultimately boring. Why would I want to leave this place for that place? I want to fire up your imagination. Did you get that? Okay, good. I got a long ways to go, so keep staying with me. <laughs> You may not need coffee today if I keep going this way, but the third thing and the most important thing is my aim is to encourage and invite you to exercise heaven on earth now in anticipation of the Lord's coming, to put heaven on your radar for your everyday living so that it becomes a compass for the choices that you make and an anticipation of the Lord's return when he will come again. In other words, heaven is not a nice auxiliary place that you just parenthetically think about. It should be front and center on the radar of your heart and your mind, which is why I want to fire up your imagination of heaven. It was central to the Hebrew people thinking of heaven and to the first Christ followers. They were thinking of heaven as I'm going to present it today, but we've kind of lost our way in terms of how we even think about heaven if we think about heaven at all. In fact, J.C. Ryle, the 19th century British theologian, said, I pity the man who never thinks about heaven. And perhaps we could restate it in a different way. That is, I pity the person who never thinks accurately about heaven. And I fear that the way we think of it demotivates us rather than motivates us. So I'm setting up, I'm putting a frame of reference for us today. It's a teaching message. It's complex. I want to make it as accessible as possible. So I brought um, the, the white sheets to help me today. And I'm going to draw or attempt to draw to give some perspective with the hope that you will begin to see, first of all, what I'm going to call the big picture. And um, if you want to take notes, you can. Um, try to hang with me. If you need an extra cup of coffee, um, don't leave now and get it. <laughs> Pray that the Spirit just infuses you with what you need here. I want to summarize the big picture um, in the way that the Bible Project does, adapting it a little bit, because I think they give a good, concise, even though it's going to take me a few minutes to walk through it, picture of heaven and earth. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways that we think about God's space and our space. And we get our space. We understand it because there's trees, there's rivers, there's mountains, there's uh, buildings and cities, and there's people. We live here, we understand this. But when it comes to God's space, it's a bit fuzzy and we have a lot of questions about God's space. And it's that space that we want to give energy and attention to because we're inclined to think about heaven and earth as two spaces. But the Bible presents heaven and earth not as two separate spaces, but spaces that overlap. And so what happens is we are so mindful of what happens when we die, 
we're thinking about where do we go. So we talk a lot about heaven and thinking about heaven as a place we go up to. And we share very little about this overlap space of heaven and earth. And it's kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the whole story of the Bible is about. Um, the reuniting, the union of, uh, uh, of heaven and earth, the uniting of heaven and earth is what God wants us to understand about his given work, that he intended it to be holy when he made it together, and then it got divided, and now he's in the process of remaking it. And so that's the first introduction. I'm not done. You need another cup of java? Are you hanging with me so far? Are we good? All right, good, hang in. Let's go back to the beginning, see if we can get a little bit more clarity. So in the beginning, God made heaven and earth and they were united, they were one together. And I put the word here, garden, in the middle because the description of the garden speaks to this place that was heaven and earth being united together. It's the place where heaven and earth meet together because they're, they're united together. And so God dwells with humanity and people, they partner with God. Um, and there's no separation between God and humanity. We're joining God in this renewal, uh, or in this effort of building a world that is flourishing and beautiful, etc. That's what was originally made. But what God made as united got marred um, and divided because humans had an idea that was different than God's idea. And they wanted God to be um, exiting out of our space so that we could have our will in place. And we create a place um, on earth for us to exercise our will and we separate God as something, someone who's out there and we miss the overlap because of sin. Sin is simply missing the mark of God of this being reunited, we divide it and because of sin that division takes place in our hearts and our minds. And as a result of that, the Bible actually gives us some depictions, some words about this realm or this dimension called heaven, saying that heaven is also called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or eternal life. And earth is called the world or the present age. And you find that these words help us get an understanding of these spaces that we think of God's space and our space. But from God's perspective, in the biblical narrative, they're not separated, that there is an overlap of heaven with earth. And you might ask the question, well, how is there an overlap in light of the sin that has come here? Well, God makes a provision. And the provision you could call as being, I'm making a tent, if you can't tell. A tent represents tabernacles, the temple of the Lord. And it becomes the place where heaven overlaps with earth. And so we find that the tabernacle becomes the place where you can enter into the presence of God and experience what is um, potentially the, the beauty of God in its original intent. In fact, you, you could say that as you go up into the temple experience, there are two temples and tabernacles defined in the biblical narrative, and the first is that of Moses, who builds a tabernacle, and then Solomon, who builds the temple, and the, the temple that Solomon builds is utterly fantastic, beautiful in every way. In fact, you enter into gardens on the Temple Mount, which gives you a picture that you're going back to the Garden of Eden. So that renewal of heaven and earth is on the mind of even God's people as they make their way to the temple. And you have 
precious metals. It's absolutely spectacular and beautiful, which is why it got plundered and robbed so many times because of the beauty that was there giving that picture of, uh, of the overlapping of God, overlapping heaven with earth with people through this picture of the temple experience. And we find that in this temple experience, there are words that describe these spaces too because the heaven coming out of the garden is that picture of God's presence, his goodness, his beauty. And the picture of earth is the picture of sin, injustice, and ugliness. So how can people in a world of sin, injustice, and ugliness enter into an overlap in the temple and experience the presence of God? It is through what was called animal sacrifices. So you bring an animal, the animal to sacrifice, I can't tell you exactly how this transaction happens, but somehow that sacrifice of animal, their bloodshed absorbs your sin and you're made clean so you can enter into the clean space where God is. That's the beginning of the story. Are you still with me, hanging in? I'm, I'm still building a frame of reference. We go to Jesus in the New Testament. And what a picture you have with Jesus in the New Testament because we find in Jesus um, a, a description in John 1.1 that you don't want to miss. It's such a powerful picture. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I like what one linguist says about this. In the beginning was the relationship, and the relationship was with God, and the relationship was God. That that's a better translation of the Greek word logos in here. But the reality is that God has always been about relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit working collaboratively together with his people in dynamic relationship. But we have kind of gone away from him and he's bringing us back together. That's the picture you have. And then in John 1, 2, you have these words. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. In him was life. And that life was the light of mankind. That light shines into the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. We have a penetrating breakthrough that happens and we find the clarity of it in John 1.14, which says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That God becomes human in Jesus. Whoa. Heaven is coming into the earth through the revelation of Jesus, the Son of God. And we say his dwelling was among us. That little word dwelling in the Greek has a literal translation, and the translation is God pitched his tent. He set up his tabernacle. So what John is doing is saying that Jesus, um, a little bit of a beard, uh, <laughs> that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the temple. The place where heaven and earth are overlapping. The place where we can enter into the presence of the Lord. So we find this equation taking place here. And what's interesting about this little equation of Jesus being the temple is he doesn't stay in the safe place. He doesn't stay in the clean place. In fact, he enters. He says the light enters into the darkness of the world, it shines, he shines, and how does he do that? Well, he enters by being with sinners, and he forgives the sins of people here, and there, and here, and there, and the gospel is spreading through the presence of Jesus, who comes amongst sinners to forgive them of their sins, 
to cleanse them of their sicknesses, to bring the hope of heaven to earth. And he declares again and again, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here in the coming of Jesus and it's dwelling in the people here and there, here, near and far, as we say. And it begins that beautiful, beautiful spread along the way. And yet the people... um, who were watching this happen took offense as Jesus even taught them to pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So where we had our will creating our space separate from God, he ushers in his presence so his will becomes our will. And we begin to align this overlapping of heaven and earth. But people Um, who were here at that time when Jesus was here didn't like this notion at all because there are other kingdoms present, aren't there? There's kingdoms of oppression and opposition, of death and of violence, of power over people. And they don't like this idea of heaven and earth being reunited and so they kill Jesus in the midst of that. And you start to think, oh my goodness, God's renewal initiative of heaven and earth coming together has now been lost forever. But I take you back to the words of John the Baptist who says the Lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin. So how does he go about taking away the sin of the world? Well, Jesus isn't simply talked about as the temple. You know that he's also talked about as the temple sacrifice. So he goes to Calvary's cross, he dies for your sin and mine, and through his blood shed for us, we receive the forgiveness of sins, enter into dynamic relationship with the Lord, are washed clean. We can enter into the clean presence of the Lord because of the righteousness of Christ who is in us. And now you find the spreading of this beautiful thing of Christ in people, not restrained into a temple experience, but we are the temple of the Lord through Christ who is in us, and it's spreading from Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the ends of the world, here, near, and far. That's the movement. From Jerusalem, into those surrounding regions, into Europe, into Asia, and all the way here to Chanhassen, and to Bloomington, and our sites, wherever you might be, the gospel is here. We're here today because of this renewal initiative. Aren't you excited about that? That's a frame of reference that I'm giving you today on this piece. And you can say this is really great, but it leaves a big question in our mind because when we think of heaven, most of the time we're thinking about what happens the moment that I die. (laughs) That's what we think about. And our energy goes there. Where do I go? Don't I just fly from this space into this space? How many of you are Star Trek fans? Just raise your hand. Can I see your hand? Some of you really are, you know, Beam me up, Scotty, that that picture. You got that idea. Let's get rid of this place that is about to be destroyed and get into a place that will not be destroyed. So there are people who think the earth will be destroyed. It will not be destroyed. We're not being beamed up to heaven away from the troubles of this world and the way that we think about it. And that's what I want to explain when we talk about the question, where is heaven? Yes, I will say in the New Testament, we learn that those who receive Christ will be with him in a dimension of heaven when we die. But it is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus of the Bible story is to reunite heaven and earth, which got divided because of sin. So what was made by God got marred by sin. It's being remade by Jesus Christ, who is at work in and through us, okay? That's the picture we have. So where is heaven when we die? I'm going to give you two questions as a summary statement before I go any further. The moment we die, we go somewhere, but where do we go? 
I'm thinking of my friend on Thursday. You're thinking of grandma, grandpa, loved one in your own life. Where do they go the moment that they die? I want to address that question. And secondly, when Jesus comes again, we're going somewhere. Where are we going? And I want to address that question so we have clarity about where is heaven and it impacts our daily lives. In the weeks to come, I'll get practical on the application of all of that. So one dimension of heaven speaks to what I call transitional housing, and the other speaks to forever housing. And I'm gonna start with transitional housing, which I wanna say I made up this word. So theologians don't call it transitional housing. I just know you watch HGTV and you're gonna understand this language better. Theologians would call this the new heaven, this space, they would call it um, the intermediate heaven. Let me give you a definition. The intermediate state is the time between our death on earth and our future resurrection to life on the new earth. It's the place that we go when we die. It's the place that we wait for the return of Christ to earth in our bodily resurrection. When he resurrects the earth and makes it new, our bodies are renewed with our souls and it's made new and we will live with him there. So when we tell our children that grandma is now in heaven, we're referring to this transitional housing initiative. That's what we're referring to. It's the present heaven. Jesus teaching us that the moment we die, we will enter into his presence. Jesus says to the thief on the cross today, you will be with me in paradise. So we know that there's a transition that happens, that our soul goes to be with him and our bodies will join him later. And we're not told a lot of detail about these dimensions, even though there's a lot of in imagery about heaven. So don't think that the question mark about heaven isn't explained. It certainly is. And we're gonna be giving some of that description ahead. But it's, we're not told a lot about this transitional spot, but we know that it's far better than this place. Philippians 1.21, Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we know it's a place um, from the scriptures without suffering. We know it's a place of meaningful rest. We know it's a place of adventure in some measure. We know that it's a place of anticipation. So there's an awareness of God's work in this renewal project and we anticipate that day when Jesus comes back to make it all new again. And so it's a place where we see Jesus face to faith. And I, I think I can say this and you'll believe me, I hope you do. There's nothing boring about Jesus, okay? It's not an eternal hymn saying. No, we will be caught up in the glory of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ as we look forward to our bodily re resurrection and relocation to the earth, new earth. So it's a temporary residence. It's not our forever home. I'll get to that in a moment. But I wanna clarify there are two experiences that this is not because of the various denominations and how church history has shaped our perspective of heaven. And the first is this is not purgatory. There is not a biblical doctrine of purgatory. You can't find that in the scripture. It was introduced to the church in the sixth century and refers to a place where the souls of believers go to be further purified from their sin until they're ready to be admitted into heaven. But we know from the teaching of scripture that Christ came once and all to die for our sins. The purifying effort was accomplished on the cross of Jesus Christ. We're not being purified any further. We add nothing to this process. And then secondly, this is not soul sleep. And this concept was introduced into many denominations in the 1830s. And it carries the idea that when we die that you, you, you actually go to sleep. And you're kind of, I guess, in this disembodied state. 
sleeping, not conscious, but awaiting the resurrection of Jesus when he makes all things new. It's neither of those two things. Um, they're not asleep, waiting for that day when we wake up and to the new earth. I wanted to bring clarity to those two doctrines. And though this transitional housing will provide a home more wonderful than anything that we know, um, in terms of living here, we are destined for a life where the earth will be resurrected and made new and we will in our bodies be resurrected and made new to live on the earth that is before us. So I'm gonna call this our forever home. And again, theologians don't call it that. Um, they may call it the eternal home. Matter of fact, the definition here is the new earth, the place where we will live forever with Jesus and each other. So I can call it our dream home. That makes sense to me. Carrie and I would love to build a dream home. We've never built a dream home. I don't know if we'll get to it in this life or not, but I know I got a dream home that's being prepared for me in advance. And that excites me more than any dream home you could ever build on earth. Think more about the dream home of heaven that will be yours than the dream home on earth that will be yours for such a temporary period of time. Historically, this is what the first Christians believed. Not that they would go from earth into heaven, going up. That wasn't the primary they thought. It was rather that heaven was coming down to earth, making it new. That's what gave them the hope and the strength to live. They were awaiting the return of Jesus, and we do the same thing. That was the lens that brought them hope. And often we think about heaven as departing from our place into the angelic realm to live um, with God in his place. But the book of Revelation ends with heaven, the new Jerusalem, coming to earth so that God dwells with us in our place, the new earth. Let's take a look at it. It's in Romans, or Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Just a beautiful statement there. Um, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And I love this. He will wipe every tear from your eye. You know, we say that often and I think we lose the beauty of it. We think of it doctrinally as a propositional truth rather than a relationship piece. Any mom knows that you've had moments where you have wiped away the tear of a child who has hurt themselves in one way or another or broken in some way or another. And this is God himself wiping away our tear. Oh, the intimacy of that. It just speaks to my heart, and I pray it speaks to yours as well. See, the earth isn't obliterated. It's not replaced. It's simply renewed. It's made new. We have never known earth without sin, suffering, or death, and yet we sure yearn for it. Don't you just yearn for an earth as beautiful as this earth is, but redeemed with brighter colors without the sin and the destruction, the evil, the violence, the injustice that we see everywhere? That's the picture that we get here. We will be delivered from the curse, and one day... Um, our lives will be here on earth forever and ever. So when you're sitting at the cabin looking at the night skies, I was doing this the other night, I'm going, oh, I don't want this moment to pass. It will be here again for me in more living color than ever. So the whole creation will be set free from its slavery and corruption. It's made new to enjoy God's intended freedom. You know, it's hard for us to grasp this, partly because we have so many hymns 
And there have been so many prayers in our journey with sermons that speak of us going up to heaven that that's what we fix our eyes on rather than earth and God's dwelling coming to us. When Jesus returns, it will be a visit to pick us up and take us to heaven is how we think of it. But no, when Jesus returns, friends, he plans to stay. And we're going to stay with him. Doesn't that get you excited about the earth that we live in? And it has direct impact for us in our personal journeys. N.T. Wright calls this God's putting, putting it right project. That God is the business of renewing, of putting all that is broken to be right again. And God will put the whole world right. And in our salvation, he makes us right with him. And he begins that transformation of the new life that we have so that love, joy, peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, those marks of Christ in us get lived out in a way that's compelling. It's a taste of heaven on earth. And he wants us to be part of the putting right project in the world in which we live. We join God as we did in the original intent when God made heaven and earth united as one. And we put right that which is broken as advanced signs of what's gonna happen when he returns again and completes that process. So care for the poor, care for the planet, on our radar, a priority. We give our energy to that because we are God's change agents to bring that about. I'll speak more about that next week in real practical ways. We are, I think you would agree, a broken people, right? And we live in a broken world. And we need fixing, and God's promise is that he will fix it, that he will fix it. I'm glad for that promise. Aren't you glad for that promise? Let me wrap up with a brief story here. In 1952, Florence Chadwick, I've got a story of her, or a picture of her here. She stepped off of Catalina Island in order to swim to the mainland of California, which was 21 miles. I would call that a hearty swim. Not too many of you would be in the mood for that swim. 21 miles. And it was a very, very cold day when she left. It was foggy, it was difficult to see, and she could hardly see the boats that were alongside of her. But Florence swam for 15 hours. And as she was swimming, she got exhausted and she wanted to be taken out of the water. Her mom was in one of the boats next to her and said, honey, you're, you're too close. You don't want to come out. She tried to keep going. She could not. She was just felt so physically exhausted. She was just not able to do it. So they pulled her into the boat. And when she got into the boat, she could see the truth that was before her. She was less than a half a mile away from her destination. She was 98% there. And the next day, when she was interviewed by the journalist for the local paper, she said these words, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. All I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. Do those words relate to you? Do you find yourself so utterly exhausted by the brokenness and the issues of our day by the worry and the doubt, the depression, the health problems we have, the unemployment and financial instability, the loss of loved ones, that life becomes a fog and we, we lose clarity about what's ahead. And yes, I know there are joys and celebrations that God gives to us every day. And I think we should always be looking. I think God does something good in your life every day. Look for the good. We celebrate that. We praise God for it. But we also acknowledge the reality that we are physically and emotionally exhausted at times. 
And we find ourselves with things weighing heavily in our hearts and they create a fog and it can sometimes keep us from seeing the shore that's before us. And God's promise is to let us see the shore. To put right that which is broken, to remake his creation and we who are in it through faith in Jesus Christ. So Florence Chadwick said, I think if I could see the shore, I would have made it. And for us, the shore is a person and a place. We were made for a person and a place. And the person is Jesus. And the place is heaven. In fact, we find we will never be fully satisfied with any person, never, um, uh, more than Jesus himself. So we want to be with him now and all that is still to come. And we will never be fully satisfied with any place less than our forever heaven the kingdom of God on earth completed in Christ Jesus. So 2 Peter 3.13 says, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So you got the frame of reference, but this series really is now speaking about the righteousness of Christ that is in us. And what does it mean to live out the kingdom of heaven on earth today, but also anticipate it? It's on your radar that you're firing up your imagination for what is to come when Jesus Christ returns. Last week, we prayed for hundreds of kids who are going to camp to experience the goodness of God, the revelation of God from heaven to earth in their own souls, and dozens of kids said yes to follow Jesus. And now, heaven gets on their radar, and I pray it's not come to faith and wait for the day when you go up to be with Jesus in heaven. That we embrace the transformation they do and we do of heaven on earth, the kingdom of God that he ushered in in the here and the now. We pray for their transformation to be mighty agents of change for God in the world and through them for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And friends, let us be actively transformed by Christ with them for all that he has in store for us now. Let's join him in the renewal effort. Let's be his change agents. Let's see the brokenness. Let's step into the mess of the brokenness as Jesus steps into the mess of our worlds in order to bring heaven on earth. The kingdom of heaven is ours in him. Amen? You guys did so great at Bush Lake Online. I know that you got a frame of reference. Are you hanging in there still with me? All right, then let's stand together at our various sites and just join together in praying the Lord's prayer as Jesus taught it with the idea of the kingdom of heaven on earth in full that we get to be part of. Join me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen and amen. I'm going to invite the Bush Lake folks to have a moment together so they'll be with their team.